Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled The Roaring Twenties. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak and turn to the slide 1920s Culture. Spectator sports became more popular in this era. George Herman, Babe Ruth, slugged home runs for the New York Yankees. Though at first he had been signed as a pitcher for the Red Sox, though he was traded for $125,000 to the Sox owner, who used it to fund a failed play. And this was the start of the infamous Red Sox curse that lasted until 2004. Go Sox! A bigger star than Babe Ruth was the boxer Jack Dempsey, who became the heavyweight champion in the 1920s. Ruth's biggest contract was actually $80,000 salary for one season. By contrast, Dempsey was paid $750,000 for just one of his fights. Radio also changed the way people experienced entertainment. If cars allowed people to spread out, radios brought them together. People across the country turned in to listen to the news, sporting events, political speeches, music, in programs like Amos and Andy. Those politicians that could effectively make use of these technologies to reach new constituencies would soon revolutionize electoral campaigns. In 1927, Charles Lindbergh made the first solo flight across the Atlantic, and he flew his Spirit of St. Louis from New York City to Paris in 33 and a half hours. And when he landed, it was covered in a radio broadcast. This is also the era of the lost age of American writers, with Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald leading American literature. There are also grand movies. The Great Train Robbery had first aired in Nickelodeons, or theaters, in 1903, but these were silent films. In 1927, the jazz singer became the first talkie, when film used combined dialogue and music within the movie itself. The film was a huge hit, since it was about an immigrant kid who just wanted to play jazz. The point is that American culture is changing, as technology aids the dissemination of entertainment to broader audiences. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Black Culture. The Jazz Age was born in New Orleans around the turn of the 20th century, because classically trained Creole musicians in black hot players were forced together by Jim Crow laws. Very few of the first generation's artists, like Buddy Bolden or Jelly Roll Morton, were able to record themselves, though later musicians, like Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, were able to get their stuff recorded. In fact, one other famous musician, Benny Goodman, the son of a European immigrant, learned clarinet at Hull House. Jazz spread as musicians traveled the country and as African Americans moved with the Great Migration. It is arguably one of the most authentic American cultural traditions, derived from old songs and music styles of formerly enslaved African Americans. Well, carrying this music, as I said before, was the Great Migration which continued through the 1920s, where more than 600,000 African Americans moved north to cities like Detroit, 
Chicago, and Harlem in New York City, where vibrant black communities developed. These communities contributed to the outpouring of creativity and the celebration of black culture, nicknamed the Harlem Renaissance. It included writers like Langston Hughes and Claude McCade and produced famous paintings depicted on the slide. We also see the rise of new political ideas like black nationalism, which emphasized being proud of being a black American, to not be ashamed, and this was a cultural resistance to white supremacy. You also see the emergence of Pan-Africanism, the belief in the solidarity of the African diaspora in wanting to restore independence to African countries under European colonialism. Finally, we see the civil rights movement strengthening in the era, as the lessons of the First World War and the Civil War proved African American soldiers were equal to white soldiers, while common people on the ground asserted their humanity, and the NAACP slowly pushed legal action in the nation's highest courts that would culminate in important court cases after the Second World War. The point is that African Americans and other communities celebrated their culture and added to the American experience with great music, beautiful art, and new intellectual traditions that remain with us to this day. Please advance to the next slide entitled Grassroots Garveyism. Harlem is also where Jamaican born Marcus Garvey found his footing. He is a unique figure in the civil rights movement and was often seen as controversial by other reformers. Garvey believed in black independence, that African Americans should take care of their own communities and not be reliant on whites for help. He believed that segregation was for safety. In Garvey's opinion, African Americans should have separate communities to prevent white terrorist violence from the KKK and others like at Tulsa and Elaine. In fact, he supported the use of the Second Amendment by African Americans for self-defense and to protect their communities. As a result, many whites supported gun bans. Garvey was also controversial because he sat down with the KKK to work out how the races could be separate and nonviolent, and the NAACP hated him for this. Garvey also promoted economic entrepreneurship to uplift black businesses and build black capital in order to have prosperous communities. And this is much like what Booker T. Washington believed. Lastly, and controversially, he advocated a return to Africa in order to protect African Americans from whites and to help restore independence to African states under imperialism. Garvey founded the United Negro Improvement Association, the UNIA. This organization was blacker and more bottom-up compared to the interracial, top-down NAACP. It established a formidable presence in the South and may have had as many as 4 million members. But as I said, he had enemies in and out of government. And as a result, authorities made trumped-up charges in order to get him arrested, sent to prison, and finally deported from the United States. But his legacy informed many more radical civil rights advocates, and we will see that men like Malcolm X picked up on his legacy.
Please advance to the slide entitled Consumerism. In the 1920s, you begin to see the mass production of cars and appliances for prices that were relatively accessible to many Americans. The growth of the car industry spurred growth in related industries like rubber, fabrics, glass, and service stations. With industrial scale production, you need industrial scale demand. So, as a result, the advertising industry developed in order to sell all the stuff. Companies told consumers that the reason that you don't have a date isn't your rotten personality, it's because you don't have the right mouthwash. Or that the reason that you aren't cool is not because of your attitude, it's because you don't have the right cigarette. This kind of gives us the idea that you are defined by your possessions rather than by your own mind and actions. Feeding into this was the second best-selling book of the era from Madison Avenue partner Bruce Barton, entitled The Man Nobody Knows. This called Jesus the greatest advertiser of his time and said that Jesus, quote, picked up 12 men from the bottom ranks of business and forged them into an organization that conquered the world, end quote. That's pretty sacrilegious. Well, as a result, the advertising industry, those madmen depicted in the AMC show of the same name, made great amounts of wealth, convincing people they needed to buy stuff that they ultimately did not need. All of this will feed into a culture of consumerism that emphasized style, luxury, and leisure, again being defined by your possessions. Americans bought refrigerators, vacuums, cars, and radios, often on installment plans, which is basically like a form of credit, where you pay money in several installments before you can collect an item. By the mid-1920s, one could buy a Model T for $260, a low enough price that thrifty workers could afford one. This led to the rise of car culture in America. In 1929, before the stock market collapsed, 26 million cars were registered in the United States, one for every 4.9 Americans. The car changed American culture. Railroads declined in importance. Fresh produce could be transported more quickly. The suburbs were created and spread out away from cities where people worked and the poor congregated. Cars were the ultimate symbol of freedom and equality. You could go where you wanted, when you wanted. You could now take vacations and go wherever the road went, leading to the rise of the tourism industry in America. Cars even changed the way people dated and socialized, as you could now pick up a date and go to the movies, or perhaps go to the park for other activities. Many older Americans viewed this disdainfully as one Indiana judge called the car a, quote, house of prostitution on wheels. The point is that our modern society is obsessed with consumerism for consumerism's sake, and that buying and accumulating of stuff is the end-all be-all of our existence, and that our worth comes from what stuff we have, and all of this originates in the 1920s, and perhaps there are other ways of living your life. Just saying. Please advance to the next slide entitled Gender Roles. In the 1920s, gender roles were beginning to change and evolve 
which met support and resistance from familiar circles. Due to urbanization and the expanding economy, more women worked outside the home, though typically in lower-paying clerk and typing jobs. This led to the rise of the new woman, who defied traditional gender norms. She smoked cigarettes, drank beer, drove cars, talked about sex, and wore heavy makeup, bobbed hair, and short skirts. Well, shorter than the traditional six inches above the ground type of skirt. This also led to the term flapper, probably derived from the way that stylish women's galoshes flapped around their ankles. Some women openly advocated new opportunities for women, like Margaret Sanger, who endorsed birth control for sex and pleasure. <gasps> oh my gosh. Though she also is known for advocating for abortion for black women as a way to stop their, quote, proliferation. So, the good with the bad. Women also exercised their right to vote, which continued to flummox men, since women were voting their conscience rather than what their husbands thought. Again, shocking. The point is that women were empowered to be more than just a wife or mother. If they wanted, they could have a job, possessions, and lifestyles that appealed to them. Though as gender norms were challenged, elites and authorities looked for ways to re-establish control over women's bodies. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Building a Better Race. Unfortunately, in this era, we see the rise of eugenics, derived from American racial pseudoscientific thought and social Darwinism. Eugenics is the belief in improving the genetic quality of humans. See, many were convinced of the myth of Spartan eugenics, trying to keep a society of fit citizens while the unfit were cast aside. The Nazis will later do this on a horrifically larger scale. There are two ways you can approach eugenic policies. Negative eugenics is to dissuade or control reproduction from the unfit. This is typically done with forced or unknown sterilizations of women's reproductive systems or the forced institutionalization of the mentally ill to keep them from procreating. Another tactic is positive eugenics, which encourages the reproduction of the so-called fit. Examples of this are the child tax credit, home ownership write-offs, low inheritance taxes, favorable loans, and other government policies. In many ways, eugenics is the poster child of progressive reform, since it is communal action for the public good, though this is a prime example of how people disagree over what the public good is. Because of these policies, tens of thousands of Americans were sterilized, with unknown numbers of people in American territories or countries under American occupation also being sterilized. There is a horrific story of a woman who found out that she was sterilized. You see, an academic was doing research on women who had been sterilized. So he visited the home of one and asked her about her experience. She then hit the ground and began to hysterically cry. The academic was taken back, and her husband rushed over and began comforting her. The academic later learned that this poor woman had never known she was sterilized. Her and her husband wanted a baby more than anything in the world, 
and they could never figure out why they could not get pregnant. Can you imagine all the fights over the inability to conceive? The untold resentment they felt towards each other, maybe even believing it was the other one's fault, is a tragic scenario. And this is why you keep the government out of the doctor's office. One final example of why we keep the government out of the doctor's office in the horrors of white supremacist ideology is the book The Passing of the Great Race, written in 1916 by the zoologist, conservationist, and eugenicist Madison Grant, an American. In this book, Grant advocated the following, quote, A rigid system of selection through the elimination of those who are weak or unfit, in other words, social failures, would solve the whole question in 100 years as well as enable us to get rid of the undesirables who crowd our jails, hospitals, and insane asylums. The individual himself can be nourished, educated, and protected by the community during his lifetime, but the state, through sterilization, must see to it that his line stops with him, or else future generations will be cursed with an ever-increasing load of misguided sentimentalism. This is a practical, merciful, inevitable solution of the whole problem and can be applied to an ever-widening circle of social discards, beginning always with the criminal, the diseased, and the insane, and gradually extending to types which may be called weaklings rather than defectives, or perhaps ultimately to worthless race types. End quote. Many took this deadly seriously. Writing from a prison cell after a failed coup, a young Austrian-born corporal in the German army wrote Madison Grant, and he told Grant, this book is my Bible, and he planned to incorporate it in his vision for his country's future. And that man was Adolf Hitler. And we will soon see, with chilling efficiency and cold-hearted application, that the ideas of an American eugenicist directly contributed to the horrors of the Holocaust. You cannot make this stuff up. The point is that eugenic policies are horrific and largely a response to modernity or a sense of uncertainty about the future, as well as a challenge to those who sought to overturn traditional gender norms. Because when things get iffy, elite men try to control women's bodies and sexuality in order to make sense of the chaos. It is an unfortunate continuity of human history. Please advance to the slide, Teaching Evolution. Much like today, there are disputes about Darwinian science, as five states passed laws banning or restricting the teaching of evolution in schools. In one of those states, John T. Scopes, a 24-year-old science teacher and football coach, broke the law by teaching about evolution from a book called A Civic Biology, which was a standard text of the day. The textbook also included information about eugenics, by the way. This led to his trial in 1925 in Dayton, Tennessee, in the court case called State of Tennessee vs. John T. Scopes, nicknamed the Monkey Trial. The defense was led by the renowned civil rights lawyer Clarence Darrow, while the prosecution was led by the old politician William Jennings Bryan, back for his last ride. Bryan was neither anti-science nor anti-evolution, 
but he did oppose schools teaching that evolution was definitely true. More importantly, he strongly believed that humans had been created in the image of God, and he worried that if kids learned about evolution, it would make them behave immorally and maybe even side with eugenics. Both sides knew that Scopes had broken the law, but they viewed the trial as a chance to discuss Darwinism, religion, and free speech on a public stage. Over 200 reporters showed up, and on the last day of the trial, the defense called Brian as a witness, which is highly unusual for a defense to call a member of the prosecution. Darrow intended to illustrate the silliness of the Bible. During the cross-examination, Darrow asked Brian, quote, You have given considerable study to the Bible, haven't you, Mr. Brian? To which Brian replied in the affirmative. Darrow then asked, Do you believe a whale swallowed Jonah? Do you believe Joshua made the sun stand still? Do you think the earth was made in six days? Brian responded with diluted, indirect answers that illustrated that he did not always interpret the Bible literally. Many believed that Brian had been humiliated, and he died a few days later, with some claiming that Darrow had killed him with his intense questioning. In the end, the verdict was clear. Scopes was found guilty and fined the minimum of $100. Many claimed that Brian and the prosecution had ultimately lost, because if you read it close enough, the Bible can contradict itself in several places. The point is that we continue to disagree about science and religion to this day, with many wanting to suppress the latter in favor of the former. You get to decide in your private life what you believe, but you don't have the right to change facts and evidence to suit your beliefs. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Roaring Twenties? In the 1920s, the United States stock market was booming, but many people were buying stocks on margin, which meant that they would only pay 10% of the stock price in order to pay it off later, and this arbitrarily inflated the market. While this is going on, many farmers were struggling. You see, crop prices had been kept high during the war because of European demand. But once the war ended and European demand declined, farmers were in a hard spot as prices decreased. In addition, gasoline engine tractors allowed U.S. farmers to produce more than ever before. So as the supply kept getting higher, prices continued to drop. So during the so-called Roaring Twenties, one in four farms were sold for taxes or debt. Industrial workers in cities also did not see higher wages. And finally, other countries were struggling too. Americans had loaned large sums of money to Britain and France during the war. And after the conflict, the Americans obviously wanted it repaid. But Britain and France were broke. So they asked that their debt be canceled since they provide the blood in order to win the war while the United States had sat it out. Coolidge's response was, quote, They hired the money, didn't they? End quote. So Britain and France now have to demand that Germany pay its reparations so that they can pay back their loans. France even sent troops into the Ruhr Valley in 1923 to hasten German payments. Germany responded by just printing more money, which caused severe inflation. As an example, in October 1923, in Germany, the cost of a single loaf of bread 
was 480 million marks, the equivalent of 120 million US dollars. German society, as a result, was teetering on the brink of anarchy. Charles Dawes, who was Coolidge's vice presidential candidate, proposed a solution in 1924. So if you look at the diagram on the PowerPoint, it's pretty self-explanatory. The United States will give Germany billions of dollars in loans, which then takes that money and pays it in reparations to the Allies, who then take that money and pay back their war debts to the United States. This system actually worked pretty well, until the Great Depression hit, when U.S. investments dried up and the whole system collapsed. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Election of 1928. In the election of 1928, the Republican candidate, Herbert Hoover, who had become famous for his efforts at humanitarian relief, defeated the Catholic New York Governor Al Smith in a landslide. Some Republicans had claimed during the campaign that Smith's presidency would make the White House a branch of the Vatican, with rum, Romanism, and ruin as their campaign slogan. This type of prejudice against Catholics continued well into the 20th century, though JFK actually addressed his Catholicism head-on during his election campaign in 1960. Look at the map. You should discern one other thing. While most of the country went for Hoover, that solid Deep South continued to vote Democratic, even though Al Smith represented everything the Southern states hated. A Catholic, a New Yorker, and a wet politician. The point is that if you're a Democrat, the Solid South will vote for you, even if you represent everything they hate. Please advance to the last slide entitled, How Roaring Were the Twenties? We traditionally remember the 1920s as the Roaring Twenties, with the emphasis that this was a decade of amusement filled with gangsters, flappers, and great Gatsbys. But in reality, it was a decade of the first culture war, filled with disagreements about racial and wealth inequality, about the nature of separation of church and state, and the use of state-sanctioned violence. In this era, government policy criminalized behavior, intruding itself into private homes and doctor's offices. As a result, the criminal justice system vastly expanded and eventually led to the prison industrial complex we see today. While at the same time, state-sponsored eugenics experimented on people's bodies and took away their most fundamental rights to life. The instability of the era thus contributed directly to the coming of the Great Depression, and this is the legacy of the Great Culture War, which we still fight to this day. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.